Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Welcome back, Cracked fans, to another edition of the Cracked Interviews podcast. I'm your host, Alex Gruskin. Yes, we're using the Cracked Interviews intro format to begin today's podcast, but this is actually an episode we're going to share across all of our Cracked Rackets podcast platforms as our way of saying thank you to the guest who is joining me for today's episode, a man we have all turned to for the past decade plus to learn all of the inner workings of everything going on in the tennis world. One of the best reporters we have in our business, a man who I consider a dear mentor, a close friend. I always call him my podcasting big brother. It, of course, is Ben Rothenberg, who joins us on today's show to offer insight into what he's been working on over the past few years. Some of you may have noticed we've been, unfortunately, seeing less or been able to read less of Ben over the past few years. And why has that been the case? Well, it's not because he's quit on our beloved sport. No, 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 folks. It's because he has finally completed his first work of art. I call it a novel during the course of this podcast. He quickly corrects me to inform you. It is a work of nonfiction. It is certainly a work of art, and it is a fantastic biography detailing the rise of Naomi Osaka, the book title, of course, Naomi Osaka, her journey to finding her power and her voice, Ben joins me on the podcast today to talk all about his book. Of course, Naomi Osaka, she has been a lightning rod for takes from just about every angle throughout the course of her career. Now, what she's accomplished on the court, undeniably excellent, right? Osaka's a four-time slam champion. We know her best over the past five years. It's been as good as anyone we've seen compete out on the WTA Tour. But of course, there are so many other intersections between our sport and politics, our sports and economics, our sports and just about everything you could relate it to. They can all be filtered, those relationships, through the lens of what we've seen from Naomi Osaka throughout the course of her career. And let me just say right out at the top, the exceptional new reporting provided by Ben throughout the course of this biography, that alone makes purchasing this book worthwhile. But look, we deep dive into all aspects of the book. I don't want to step on any of our conversation. I'll just simply say here at the top, it is a fantastic one that I am certain all of you listeners are going to enjoy. So without further ado, let's get to it. My conversation with author of the new book, Naomi Osaka, her journey to finding her power and her voice. My dear friend, Ben Rothenberg, joining the show once again. Westoff, hit those intro credits and let's start today's show. Joining us on the podcast once again today is a man who can only at this point be described as a dear friend 
of our operation here at Crack Rackets. Of course, you know him from his work over the years for the New York Times, for Slate.com, and for oh so many different platforms in the tennis world. Of course, now we know him as a certified author as his first book, Naomi Osaka, Her Journey to Finding Her Power and Her Voice, comes out this January. Of course, more importantly, I know him as my podcasting big brother. It is our dearest friend, Ben Rothenberg, joining us on the pod once again. Ben, welcome back to the show. What are you more excited for? The release, formally, of your first book or Michigan vs. Alabama next Monday? Definitely the book. (laughs) 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 That's that's the easiest question I'm probably going to get tonight. Definitely the book. I don't have high hopes necessarily for that semifinal against Alabama. Uh, so let's go with the book. That's probably the correct answer. I imagine you poured a few more. Actually, I'll tell you what, emotionally, I don't know how big of a Michigan football guy you are. Obviously a former Wolverine go blue, but yeah, I imagine emotionally you might've poured a little bit more into crafting this novel, which of course needs to be pointed out the perfect holiday gift for those who perhaps are a little bit late on their Christmas, on their Hanukkah, on their Kwanzaa shopping, whatever it may be. And I'll tell you what, sincerely, you will not be able to put down any of the 453 pages in this novel once you get rocking and rolling the reporting the writing is excellent and obviously in the process of writing this book you've taken a bit of a sabbatical we haven't had as much of you in the tennis world let me just say first and foremost you know I grew up reading you I grew up listening. I grew up. I'm still growing up, as we both know. But reading all of your work was must-do for me in college and prior to that. And obviously listening to you and Courtney, I could blame you directly for why I do what I do today. But first and foremost, it's just damn good to have you back in our life, Ben, as a writer. So congratulations on the novel. Let me ask you this. What's the best part of turning in that first rough draft? Like, what is that sensation? Is it more relief? Is it more fear? How are you feeling after turning in, again, 450-plus pages? Uh, a beautiful piece of work. Thank you. Uh, I... It was a, it was an, it was emotional finishing it. I got to say, I finished it really, and it was roughness of the drafts was kind of a sliding scale. I mean, things were rough early, and then kind of got smoothed all along. And so the final like four hundred fifty three ish page version, which I sent in, was sent in only in August. Really, oh, it was, I was in Cincinnati. I had gone out to Cincinnati, which is only the second tournament I'd gone to all year, and I only was there on site for a couple hours actually. And I mostly just went there to see a bunch of friends who I hadn't seen all year. You know, people from the traveling circus of the tour. Because I've been off tour and I missed them. And so, like, they were coming to Cincinnati. It was within, you know, a seven, eight hour drive of DC. And so I drove to, D- to Cincinnati, saw people, you know, like Courtney, Tumani, uh, David Avaki, and some other people on tour. Just made, reminded that some tour officials that I exist because uh, I'd been out of sight, out of mind for, for a lot of the year, as you said, uh, just staying home to work on the book. And then I wound up staying uh, several more days, four or five more days, maybe after the tournament, to, uh, stay in my best Western in Mason, Ohio and finish the book. And it was uh, some, some weird hours and some long nights there, but it was actually a great, great place. So I mean, there's sort of a, a, a stereotypical like cabin near a lake in the woods that writers go to to retreat, to sort of have their peace of mind and nature and be all walled in. And I did, uh, I had a best Western in Mason, Ohio, but it, yeah. it was great. It had was a desk and an internet connection and, and, and yeah, it was, it was, it was emotional finishing it for sure. It just sort of I, like, oh, finally. <laughs> I can only imagine. Was there graders nearby as well? Like, did you get the celebratory ice cream as soon as you were done? 
I knew other graders was a, was about a block and a half away. It was very close, <laughs> and I knew which time it closed every every night. So I went there, maybe only twice during the during the stint there, but definitely like with within twenty minutes of closing each time. Like I got it. I deserve graders for all my good work here. So I'm gonna I'm gonna get over there and get my uh, what is it like the the raspberry chip situation. It's <laughs> yeah. Delicious. I like the idea that you walk there and Venus gives you the same. Oh, I totally get it that she gave Serena post Miami because <laughs> she might have been at that graders. And so again, there's a potential that you recreated a scene from your book in that moment. But again, I want to talk about the book. I want to talk about the specifics. And again, Naomi Osaka, her journey to finding her power and her voice. The over under of me saying that title. We're going to go with six and a half in this episode. Okay. We'll try okay. and see if I can exceed it because again, this is a book any tennis fan needs to pick up heading into this 2024 season. I am certain you have answered this question before, but let's start at the most basic premise of this novel. Why Naomi Osaka? First of all, it's not a novel. Novel is fictional. No, I know. I I just put it down. You said it a few times. Here we go. Here we go. Here we go. When you hit 450 pages, I know it's a biography. Let's be clear. Biography, biography, biography. You know what's a better word than biography? Novel. (laughs) you. (laughs) Anyways, why Osaka? I had wanted to write a book for a while about tennis. You know, I thought it would be a a cool thing to do to sort of pour a lot of the, the knowledge I'd acquired from years of being on tour into something in a different format where I could go deeper on stuff and hadn't quite found the the idea that would, was really resonating uh, with myself or with publishers for, for a few years. I was really kicking around. And it was frustrating, honestly, that it wasn't getting uh, traction with a couple ideas I had. And yeah, and then Naomi came along in the summer of, of 2020, really, is when, is when she got them. I started thinking about her. And specifically, I have notes about this and messages I sent that day from the day that she had stopped play in Cincinnati, uh, where or Cincinnati was in New York that year during the bubble, and she had stopped play famously because of her uh, following the NBA protests and the Jacob Blake shooting that had happened in Wisconsin, and and she had shut down the tour for a day, and I was just so struck by this really unprecedented moment of activism and, and disruption happening within tennis, which had been so conflict diverse and so distraction averse and so politics averse from its players and its stars for as long as I'd known the sport. And then also that it came from Naomi, who was this person who had been so famously shy and introverted and timid in a lot of social situations that it came from her, that she had found her voice to mention the subtitle again in this way was really remarkable. So I wanted to know more. And so then she goes on and, and wins the U.S. Open that year wearing the seven masks, and that only sort of deepened my idea that this was a, a good idea. So I started doing some preliminary research, I guess, fall of 2020 and about the idea and, and looking into her, her early life and realized just how little was known and how much mm-hmm. there was really this complete gap in reporting before she had – honestly, before she won the U.S. Open – I, you know, before the 2018 U.S. Open, but right before that tournament, there was a New York Times magazine cover story that came out about her that was um, by a guy named Brooks Larmer. And it was really good. And it talked about her multicultural background and her parents, uh, you know, a little bit of what they had gone through and living on the hyphen, having this multicultural existence. And it was a good piece, but it was really the only at all dive into her early life because she had kind of slipped through the cracks in a lot of ways, being a Japanese player who was living far from Japan. Uh, not being on the Japanese radar, really. And then also in, in the U.S., not being under the U.S. flag, people weren't paying attention to her either. So there was a lot to find out, and I found a lot of stuff and was intrigued and wanted to keep looking. And, yeah, eventually uh, after the French Open, uh, skip, skip ahead 
you know, she gets she wins the fourth Grand Slam at the 2021 Australian Open. She has her stand up at the French Open with the media. She has her mental health becomes this huge worldwide conversation. And uh, and then, yeah. And then she lights a torch at the uh, the opening ceremonies of the Tokyo Olympics. Another big moment of, of a crowning moment for her. And then, yeah, eventually I was sort of telling my agent, like, we got it. This this book has to work. Come on. Like, we, this is she's such a huge <laughs> deal right now. We got to be able to do it. And, and yeah, lo and behold, there was a. A lot of thankfully several interested publishers uh in 2021 and it's one of them done it has been great yeah yeah absolutely and you know again it's sort of self-explanatory in the title itself naomi osaka her journey to finding her power and her voice hashtag third time here on the show but more broadly I do think you sort of alluded to it there, even in your opening description, a Japanese player far away from Japan, someone who, again, we're trying to learn more about this upbringing, why she is who she is, why she acts how she acts. A question that I think as you read this story and listen to it unfold, you hear the uncertainty still within Naomi Osaka of trying oh, to yeah. determine her identity. And again, this is a very broad question, but more than anything else, Ben, this feels like a story about identity. This feels like a story about a Naomi Osaka who, through all the awkwardness and all the success, again, just about anything you're looking for on the spectrum of things to happen to a person, they have happened in the Naomi Osaka timeline is it safe to say this is a story about identity, not even just how Naomi Osaka became who she became, but again, her still searching for who do I want to be moving forward? That message screams through the pages. Yeah, and trying to figure out who she is and who she wants to be absolutely is a core part of that. And, and it goes to, you know, in 2020, her transforming from making a very conscious choice of not wanting to be shy anymore and to try to use her voice. And that's this big uh affirmative thing she says and as this pledge she makes that she holds herself to and and then it winds up being tough you know having that brightened intensified spotlight on her it's not easy also and and it, it comes back uh to, to to cause struggle for her and, and less than a year later uh when she does that so yeah and you're right the sort of multicultural thing too being this person who's American, but not American, you know Japanese but doesn't fit a lot of the traditional narrow criteria of what it means to be Japanese these are things that are are definitely there for her. And even, you know, at, at points in the end of the book, tennis player versus not tennis player, you know, when she is and sort of having, when she's having her doubts about that and, and certainly people around her even don't know what the future holds for, for Naomi. We're talking about the end of the 2022 sure. season, basically, which is what I was writing this book, which was a tricky part of, of the writing process for sure, having her her career be at a very uncertain juncture uh, during some crucial reporting and writing times uh, for me as an author. So yeah, so this was uh, definitely, I think that's absolutely right. I think identity is a huge part of it and trying to find out who she is and who she wants to be and, and what the world wants her to be as well and to, to reconcile all those different things while still so, challenging herself and still wanting you know, to not be complacent. 1000% and here's where, I don't want to say you're going to get mad at me. But I wonder if we're going to disagree about uh, Well, you know, again, I try to make it a point to push your buttons every now and then. But I wonder, because reading this story, it was so, again, I cannot emphasize this enough. I started to say it before we started the podcast and let Ben know the moment he realized it was going to turn into a compliment. He was like, you shut your mouth. You save it for the podcast. And I did. And so I want to save this again here. There's fantastic reporting, both reporting that you may not remember from years past, and a credit to you for citing all of that reporting once again, as well as new reporting, certainly unveiling new details about this Naomi Osaka story. And yet, 
And I don't mean this to come off as a criticism of Naomi. I really apologize if it does to listeners of that. I wonder how much of her uncertainty, I wonder how much of her indecisiveness, some uh, some of the struggles she has gone through, some of my takeaway from reading your book, Ben, a lot of it feels self-inflicted. Like a lot of it does feel like Naomi Osaka complicates things for herself. And I wonder if in doing this reporting, that was something – Perhaps a vibe, dare I say, a feeling, an inclination you were leaning towards as well, because I can point to different examples. I don't want to give away the entire book, but just like even right away when you talk about her stopping the match at Indian Wells and wanting to address the crowd and that moment. And of course, Andrew Krasny afterwards saying, no, we still love you, Naomi, the the entire crowd rallying to her after that Kudermatova match. With all due respect there are going to be hecklers in every crowd. I don't know, all due respect more broadly to the conversation sure. of mental health, not all due respect to you, f*** you, as I mentioned earlier, <laughs> as you know. Uh, but I just, I just wonder how much of the adversity she goes through could have been avoided through clarity of communication, through candidness with the people around her, which, by the way, her father, her mother, like that relationship is certainly something you explore with her relationship with her parents, how it has impacted her and more broadly how she acts. I just – I don't know. Like I just sometimes felt like it was a self-inflicted struggle, and I, I wonder if that was at all your perception. And that's totally fair. I think, first of all, I, I, I don't I don't take umbrage at you wanting to okay. criticize Naomi, basically. I mean, I, I the book is not a hagiography of, of Naomi, and it's not something I don't think that she's beyond uh, criticism or beyond reproach or beyond second guessing and, and whatever else it may be that you want to do. Totally. I mean, yes, absolutely. That moment you talk about is a moment where things were sort of slipping out of control for her. And that's sort of that was one of the most striking moments happened while I was in the process of working on this book while I was shadowing her on tour. And that was, again, this moment of this small thing that became this big thing at this stage of of Naomi's career and stardom and just where everything she does becomes this big cultural flashpoint and cultural Rorschach test, you know, where people look at it and say, oh, wow, it's so great that she's so in touch with her emotions or this is why wokeism is destroying the world. Look <laughs> at this generation, what they're doing. You know, those are both takes that happened after, after, after that moment of the heckler. And so, yeah, it's you know, Naomi certainly is is a it's a work in progress. And that's something that she's very open about and that she is, I think, has a positive attitude toward, towards a lot of times that, you know, she's ma- living in a public eye and making mistakes and hopefully growing and learning from them. And yeah, certainly not everything she does is perfect. And yeah, certainly there's times where she and her team also make mistakes and do things that, that don't age well. And even things, you know, you can second guess in the moment sometimes. Um, you know, I, I was probably skeptical for sure of when she signed a, a major crypto sponsorship in, in 2022 with uh, with FTX, which wound up really, really uh, going down in flames by before year's end there. So, yeah, there are certain things, you know, that are absolutely there to be criticized and to look at and say, hey, this is not not great. And yeah, and, and Naomi, because she has these I think one of the things hopefully the book does is that it shows sort of the roots of her shyness and her isolation and her shelteredness in her childhood and how a lot of times that left her ill-prepared at times when she would have been better served to be someone who was more ready to reach out and ask for help or to tell people how she was feeling. And and she often keeps people who are even in her team um, in the dark a lot of times. That – is beautifully put. And you talk about that Thank word isolation. Though. And of course, again, I can't emphasize this enough. F- 
you. Like, I'm just going to keep repeating that over and over because otherwise it'll just be too many compliments coming your way. Um, so, you know, every third question, I'll throw that in. But I, I need that. Thank you. Yeah, it was perfectly put in. Like, man, the first 120 pages of this not almost said it again, of this story is a book. case. Just say book. Just say book. book. No, book I, like, I like story better. I, book <laughs> is such a basic term. I'm not, I'm not a third grader. I'm not reading a book report. Again, this, okay. is, a, this is a story for people to learn about. Book the, is not an uneducated word yeah, for the record. It's really not. I know. The first 120 pages of this You can say work. Are, you want to say work? Of is this maybe, work. That sounds fancier. Yeah. Yeah. You know, back to the story. Okay. Naomi Osaka, her journey to finding her power in her voice, hashtag four. Yeah. Uh, it's a story almost against the homeschooling method against the isolation because and I want to point to a specific example here and I apologize again go read the book yourself to learn more about the details I'm not going to get into the names and specifics here but just listening to her journey from like ages probably seven to when she's playing that first match was it in Jamaica I believe was that first ITF Uh match that she goes down and play at like 13 the day before she turns 14 the qualifying again I love the little detail you add in I cannot emphasize this enough the reporting (laughs) exceptional but like for that six seven year stretch when she's going from coach to coach court to court location to location and her dad's making these side deals with coaches I can't pay you right now but I'm gonna pay you down the line I believe there's one instance where her and Marie signed contracts where it's like hey we're gonna give up her father her father, signs, yeah. on their her father yeah. signs it yeah. on their behalf precisely where yeah. they say hey you're getting you know 20 percent in the future obviously nothing came to that for those coaches just to be thrown into that situation and to have and again this is a byproduct of their socioeconomic background it's a byproduct of the fact that when Naomi's mother's or Naomi's grandparents in Japan found out their mother was marrying a Haitian man, they immediately cut her off and said, "We're not doing this anymore." There's a lot of factors that went into this that you report on so well, but you just have to wonder how that screws a kid up. Like to have that relationship with a coach and to just see that adversity between coach and father, to have that constant shift shading. Wait, Dad, I really like this coach. Why are we leaving? And I, I, you know, again, you don't report those conversations of Naomi asking Dad, "Why did we leave this coach?" But you have to imagine those conversations were had, right? And I just, I think this is a test case to why homeschooling and just the single focus drive of you are going to become tennis players, it can have unhealthy effects. Like that was my takeaway almost from the first 120 pages. Look, I I appreciate you saying that. I I think that there is a lot in this book and it's one kind of one of the things I've been most interested in, in a bunch of my reporting. And I did a book about Monique Vealy. I don't know if we ever talked about who was a a prodigy, Um, but just sort of, but this, the, the Florida Academy scene and this place where people go to chase these dreams and and the sort of way that can be really dark. And there were actually a bunch of other examples. I, I cut a bunch of sort of tangential stuff from the book for length. And one of the sections I cut, which I didn't write all of, but I was I cut before it was finished, was just on a, several more stories of other notable cases of people who had gone and done what the Osakas did, which was mm-hmm. to go to Florida to try to copy the Williams sisters, basically. And that was very overtly what the Osakas were doing. It, they 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 say it very forthrightly. They were following the Williams blueprint, and there's been a lot of stories. You know, I think maybe most maybe some tennis fans will certainly know uh, the story of like tornado and hurricane. Yes. The uh, the the two sisters who were who were also very much in the Williams family uh, background, who had very mixed fortunes in the in the sport. And one of the things that I think is is striking also about the book, hopefully, is that 
in the Osaka family, you have these two very divergent outcomes between Naomi and Mari. And I don't know if that's something you're going to, you're looking at your pointing. So <laughs> yeah. you're going to ask that soon, but there is this, this way of hopefully showing, I mean, in, in the sport, you know, and even you covering lower levels more frequently than I do in terms of the, certainly the, mm-hmm. the college game and the challengers, you, but certainly the pros as well. And the grand slams, I mostly cover, almost only cover top hundred players who are making a living for the most part. I, I do cover, but that's the majority of my coverage. Um, but that's those are the outliers, right? The more common stories is to make all these same sacrifices, spend all the same time, have all the same disruptions to your childhood, and then have none of the glory of the Grand Slam stages to justify that, to show for it. And even some people who do, you know, make it to top hundred still can feel like was it worth it or not? And just and I think we get caught up in a lot of times by only the the success stories and it's because it's other stories are obscure. They're not, they're not success stories and we don't tell them, um, but they're more common. And so, yeah, so I think that in Naomi's family, having these two paths and Mari, again, Mari, who's her older sister made it to 280 in the world, I believe is her high ranking, which is objectively great. I mean, being the 280th best player in the world, really, really enviable, really good by almost any definition, but for her, it wasn't enough. And for where we sort of draw the lines and pro tennis of what success 280 is probably not going to cut it. Uh, for most people's definitions and certainly not from Mari's own standards for herself. It didn't cut it. So yeah, it's a, it's a rocky world down there, man. I mean, like it's obviously worldwide, but I think something about the Florida, I, I love Florida. I mean, my dad's from Florida. I grew up in Miami beach. Like I think it's Florida is just a fascinating place for like characters and literature and reporting and all this sorts of stuff. I think Florida is a really rich environment for all that absolutely and again you see so many different intersections with other stories of players who were in, a, in south florida or around this location during that time and how her experience differs from there certainly is part of the, this story as well and you know again i think there was a moment and, and just to reflect upon again put a final bow on this before we move on to a slightly different topic when naomi osaka is looking for a role model and it's thrown around, hey, you know, her her agent, Stuart, is it pronounce his last do, name? For do me? good. Do it good, is yeah. do good. Right. Yeah. yeah. When Stuart says, what about LeBron James? We'll try reaching out to LeBron. And then it's like, hey, you know what? We're actually going to go a slightly different route. We're going to give you Kobe. Um, and, you know, again, there there's a meeting set up 9 a.m. tomorrow, I believe, was the reporting that it said. And um, Naomi goes and she gets picked up by Stuart, Stuart's wife. And they go, all right, you're going to go in there alone. And you kind of report like she's like, what? Like. You're sending me in there alone to have a conversation with someone. And I understand being intimidated by having a conversation with Kobe Bryant. And yet, it just feels like one-on-one conversations in general, unless it's with her older sister, it's just not something Naomi Osaka is comfortable with doing. And even again, you talk about, to go back to that Indian Wells example we were talking about earlier, when you know she starts to get tears in her eye after the heckler, she wants to address the crowd afterwards, and you know alludes to the infamous Serena Williams incident. It's just like a totality of things where certain social cues and certain things you gather just maybe from not being homeschooled, from just being around people other than your immediate nuclear family in life, those were things Naomi Osaka never got to experience. And again, I hate to like, I hate to start start out so critical of the Naomi Osaka childhood, but like reading the details from this, you're like, oh, no wonder she doesn't want to do the French Open press conference. Or you know, reading about her struggling when she wants to give answers in Japanese, and then she leaks into English, and she just gets so embarrassed by it, and it's just like, you understand the awkwardness, I guess, is what I'm trying to say. And you sort of alluded to this earlier, but. That's what you were trying to do with this book, right? Is try to 
peel back the layers of that onion and explain where does this come from. And I just feel like reading this book, what I continue to come back to is it really came down to the childhood. It really came down to that isolation she experienced running those hills, just her, her brother, uh, her sister. And yeah, I smiled at the Kozlov Academy reference. Of course I did, Ben. You knew I had, you know, <laughs> that you quoted Stefan Kozlov. That was a little nugget just for me that I know you were hoping I'd get to. I did. But like, I can't, I, I'm not sure the question I'm trying to ask here as much no, but as just I, giving but, you but, my but, thoughts. Look, I, I can, I can, I totally get that. And I think that what you're hopefully saying is that this book made you understand her better. Yes. Which, which, and that's, that's, I'm very glad to hear that. And that is something that I think was lacking with Naomi because again, because their tennis media journalism in general is in a place where like, if she'd been on tour 20 years earlier when daily newspapers all had tennis correspondence and, <laughs> and Sports Illustrated had a huge budget, there would have been more deep dives into her story earlier. Mm-hmm. But that's just wasn't the the moment when she grew up and especially the pandemic and stuff happening as well. There, you know, there was a lot of gaps that weren't filled in, but at the same time, people were talking about her so much. And and that is where there's this disconnect for me as a reporter, where there's all this noise, all this volume, all this loudness and this and she becomes this huge cultural person. But I, I thought the foundation for her story was really not very well filled in, even including even by herself, you know, and even by like the Netflix documentary that was about her. I don't think did a very uh, good job, honestly, of of that of building the sort of why she is that way that hopefully this book maybe can can get to a bit more um and maybe and these are honestly maybe things that people it, it takes some distance some remove as a reporter to be able to see some things sometimes that even you know she herself or her family might not always connect the dot between a and b the way you're making it sound like that i sure. did as a writer and hopefully ways that that um are fair and, and persuasive there yeah look i mean it's it's tough i mean being in this situation uh, as a player again i i think that I, I, yeah, I was trying to pull sort of the curtain back and just show that, you know, and, and this is like a, a Disney, to use another Florida term or Disney World or Disney uh, Land uh, analogy, you know, if you like are ever on a ride like at Disney World and it breaks and you like have to get off and like walk through the back like bowels of like it's a small world or something. It's 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 all dingy and gross and just pipes and, and levers and it's not sure the veneer is and is there in a tennis stuff and we only really see the veneer and the shine of the surface of, uh, of what it may be. So hopefully, yeah, this book was able to show a bit more of the, the, how the sausage is, is made to use that cliche. 100%. And, you know, again, there, and I think it was early on in the book where you referenced one of your first interviews with her, you ask, what are your goals? And she once says, I want to be the very best. Like no one ever was obviously the allusion to Pokemon. And that's a great joke. Like shout out to Naomi. Yep. That's really funny. But I feel like if you would have asked her a follow-up question of, okay, but can you give me some specifics, please? Or it just feels like in life, like she will answer a question superficially, but she's never going to give you what you're looking for. Like I just, again, and I, I hate that this comes off as critical, but that was like some of my takeaways is how much of this miscommunication and misunderstanding from us, the tennis fan, the tennis viewer, the tennis populist, the sporting fans even more broadly, and Naomi's like, I just wonder how much of it is self-inflicted because I just, some of it, it's so her centric where you're like, could you just explain what you mean, please? And like, again, I'm sorry for swearing so much, but like sometimes I just wonder if it's her or if it's us, because Look, it's a little bit of both. I appreciate your frustration yeah. with with that. And also, but I will say also, you're I've spent a lot more time with her than you have. A hundred percent, which is why this book was excellent. 
Thank you. But I do I, I disagree with what you said at the beginning of that that of that statement where you were sure. saying that she doesn't give the real answer. I think she does a lot. I think she is disarmingly honest a lot and says things that you don't expect and doesn't talk in cliches and like actively reacts to and feels and processes and responds to questions and says things that are more revealing than she probably should. On her shyness, I talk about this in the book and her coaches talked about it repeatedly too. She is way often more revealing at the press conference podium than in any other setting of her life. Like for her, it's something about it that just becomes this sort of like confessional for her. And that she can be really open at times and sharing and sharing things at times. And and both both Sasha Bayan and Wim Fassett both said, who are two longest and most important coaches basically in her career so far, both said that they learned to start reading her press conference transcripts because she was often way more open in those environments than she was with them. And, you know, it's it's an opposite thing. I mean, obviously, you, you have plenty of experience interviewing athletes and almost always they will be on, you know, if you're doing an encore interview or whatever it is, or just post-match and they'll be talking and then like you switch the recording button off and they kind of relax and then they're like more loose and, and yeah, sure. funny. Naomi is the opposite. Naomi is like really good at the microphone and then really awkward at like hallway banter. Like that's like not her, that's been my experience frequently sure. anyway. There's something about the sort of structure of the press conference setup and the sort of Q and A and, that she finds, I think, very uh, uh, secure and comforting. Um, and I think, yeah, I think that she's, I think she says a lot of very revealing things about herself in the book. You're right that sometimes you're, you're complete, you're not alone. Lots of the people who interview her find her uh, frustrating. But I think that for myself anyway, I think I can kind of click into her frequency pretty reliably when I'm in front of her. And, and yeah, and, and find the things. I mean, like I have huge i have a binder that's literally every transcript she ever did basically and went through and highlighted stuff and finding stuff that that worked and fit i think i can i can find the the, the gold in the in the sand you found some through. excellent you found some excellent quotes the one that like again she was referring to her brand of humor and she's like i like the dark quarters of youtube that's my brand yeah. of humor and there are times where i'm just like are you trying to be cute? Or are you trying to communicate something? Like, can you give me like that's funny? She was, but, like, she, she was eighteen in this interview. This is like her first. Oh, hundred percent. That's the first 100%. time we ever met. Yeah, she said You this, are one hundred percent correct. And yeah. again, all of this additional context you provide in the book, and that's what makes this such a fantastic story. Yeah. And again, for those of you looking to pick it up, even though we're not on live radio, I feel like I'm doing the radio. Do you know this is Crack Rackets twelve seventy <laughs> XYT the Sports Station? Naomi Osaka, her journey to finding her power and her voice with author Ben Rothenberg. Ben, thank you for joining us again. Um, you talk about combing through those transcripts, and I know yeah. one part of this book is Naomi Osaka didn't agree to sit down for a specific interview where you say, hey, I'm interviewing for your biography. Here are follow-up questions that I would like to ask. I am curious, though, because I know you did a lot of original reporting for this book. Was there any particular person in Naomi Osaka's life willing to participate in this novel who people who read this sorry i did it again i know i did it again leave it in west off in this story in this book um were there are people look we're having i love your here. aversion to the word book i just it's so basic i'm not basic ben i like i, I like to get funky um in this story Home, was there whatever was you want to say yeah was there any person who you thought particularly provided insight that people who read this need, look for those quotes in particular 
I mentioned her before. I think the Mari chapters in this are, are from me. So are super, good. So yeah. good. That's what I was trying to lead you to. Carry on. Okay. Thank you. I'm glad I hit the right answer there. <laughs> yeah. um, no, but Mari, Mari and I did talk for this. And, and I did talk to, you know, I did talk to Naomi a bunch during 2022 for the book. It was, yeah, you, it was a dedicated yeah. interview. So it was a bit blurry sometimes. But yes, I did talk. Naomi did ask questions that were for the book and she sure. answered them. Um, so that did happen. But Mari, anyway. Mari again has that thing where she was super revealing and, and shared a lot more stuff and and again I think that Mari's story is so important for understanding and triangulating Naomi and and seeing what it's like when things don't go totally to plan and and the kind of toll that various pressures can have on you that the family uh, and the sport puts on you basically um, through that and the struggle so yeah Mari Mari is some of my favorite. Uh, parts of the book honestly and you're nodding very vigorously so i want yeah, you to tell, well, you, tell me why you agree I, I want to ask that question because through it all and you've mentioned some of the names obviously her mother her father she had wimphaset in her life she had sasha in her life she's had all these different coaches in her life and yet what seems to break through in your reporting is there's really only one voice she trusts there's really only one voice she will turn to from the moment she got on that tennis court with her to even now present day tens of millions of dollars later. How significant is that relationship with Mari? And again, part of that's just, I feel it's a byproduct of, it was oftentimes just those two. It feels like in Naomi's mind, it's those two against the world. And I'm curious if that's a fair perception. Both Mari and Naomi have said, basically, growing up, they knew essentially three people who were their parents and each other, yeah. you know, basically that was it. And that was their whole world. And they were really that isolated. They weren't going to normal schools. They were not oftentimes going to even academies in tennis. They were a lot of times just on a public park by themselves, which just them, the two of them and their dad. I was actually talking, I did a, a podcast with Will Buschek uh, about doubles stuff. And I, I don't know if it's on air, but I was saying maybe part of the reason Naomi's no good at doubles is there weren't even four people on her court. Like they, <laughs> she, they couldn't even find that when she was yeah. growing up. Honestly, it was, it was yeah. that small an operation. Um, so doubles was not really practiced. Not really, you couldn't do it. Not, not enough people for a doubles match uh, at these courts. So uh, yeah, I I think, I kind of forget what your question was now, but yeah, but those are, but those are absolutely, that, that to me is, is showing the, the 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 specificity of of her life and there are definitely parts of that in varying degrees that show up in other tennis players as well for mm -hmm. sure it's very i talked to marty fish and marty fish is quoted in the book at some point about sort of how he says it's tough for tennis players you know to deal with mm -hmm. anxiety and adversity when they come along because we don't have normal upbringings we did not yeah. go to school most of us you know in any sort of normal capacity we just went to and from tennis courts and that was our whole lives and that does not leave us especially well grounded and giving us very strong bases for when various tough you know winds come along and, and blow our fortunes in different directions that can be very challenging for for even the best tennis players who with the most money and the biggest agencies and teams behind them i mean it's tough yeah so i think that i think that this book kind of shows the 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 strange journey you can take to get to to glory and it's something you know people are familiar with and I, when they watch elite sports a lot of times especially olympic kind of sports you know someone who goes off and it's a figure skater or a diver or whatever else from a young age and does this one thing that's not like a you know doesn't go through like a college pipeline of being like a college you know revenue sport pipeline like a, a football or basketball men's player um and have that kind of structure it can be it can be very isolating a lot of times to yeah. and but then the, you see the payoff and the glory in these moments of winning grand slams and winning 
Olympic medals and whatnot, and, and it seems worth it. But it's a it's an odd path to get there for sure. Absolutely, and it it just gets back to like I, I feel like she's distrusting. Like there's just not a lot of it takes a lot to to earn that benefit of the doubt with Naomi. And you know, again, that's what made some of the reporting when you discussed you know her rise to stardom. And the wow factor that she had, because it was very clear early on, and it was interesting talk, uh, hearing from her early coaches. And I'm curious if a lot, any of that was original reporting. If you were able to track down these coaches from, South oh yeah, Florida, yeah, almost yeah. entirely, yeah, yeah. I Which, went, I went, I went around Florida, went around Broward County, driving to various public courts. A lot of these guys are still working. One of them actually just recently passed away. I was sorry to hear, um, but yeah, but they, uh, they, yeah, I went around all those places, and that was really cool. Honestly, getting to see that's one of the things with with tennis is. You hear so much about, you know, the, I don't know, IMG or Bradenton or uh, Saddlebrook or whatever else it may be, or, or Rick Macy or Everett, uh, all these places, or Everett, yeah. Broker Raton, whatever, et cetera. And don't actually, or um, Pro World even like was one of the ones that she was at briefly. I don't think it's in the book actually, but she was there briefly. Um, you know, yeah, th- those are, you know, getting to be on those courts and see those places and getting to go to the aforementioned Kozlov Tennis Academy and seeing what that's <laughs> like up close. Uh, that was really cool, getting getting the sort of space and time to do that because almost always we only see tennis players at tournaments, which is just one part of their lives. Uh-huh. Obviously, a very relevant part of their lives, but only one part of their lives. Yeah, the next time you go to around Pembroke Pines, call me. I'm I'm in the car with you. Like that sounds like a freaking. That sounds like my mo. Like that sounds. It's like right next ass. to Miami Open. It's so close. I mean, like uh-huh. it's it's not hard to get to Pembroke Pines from Miami Open. It's very close to the Dolphin Stadium. And I'll talk to my Pembroke Pines person. But I guess just more broadly. That wow factor of her coming mm-hmm. on and that competition to earn her trust, to be her agent. And I'm blanking where she was before IMG, but it's fascinating. Octagon, to hear. Yeah. yeah, Octagon. Thank you. I was like, I know it's one of the prominent ones and I'm blanking on the name right now. But, you know, to hear you discuss about the courting process from IMG and kind of her knowing that she's going to go with Stewart over there and just, you know, again – that wow factor, that burst onto the scene, that ability to gain all of this attention, it gets me back to her story, and I think something you were trying to communicate, and please correct me if I'm wrong, dare I say, is it the story of the modern athlete? Like, is It feels as though that rise to superstardom, that was, that was such an informative and significant period of her career, and I think, again, often like it shapes her perceptions of how she attacks problems now in doing your reporting about her rise to superstardom in particular, like I hate to say that the takeaway is that like fame is just unhealthy for anyone before the age of 16. And I, again, I just feel like I'm coming off so negative and I apologize for that. Not, not, not to you, Ben, but to Naomi uh, for that fact. Yeah. Um, but I just feel like that in particular, like she was, she is kind of, that's the story, right? She is the modern superstar. And I want to start with that early portion there first, right? It's like once the attention came, it came in spades, right? She gets the wild card into the event in Japan. She makes the final there first time in 20 plus years. It just felt like it was this rush of success suddenly. And it almost took her eight years till she stepped away from the game a little bit to kind of cope in center herself and kind of figure out, okay, like what just happened to me? Yeah. It's a blur for sure. And it's at the same time, it's something you're preparing for the whole, your whole life being a tennis star, but at the same time, you're totally unprepared for it Mm -hmm. and you can't really know it until it happens. And again, I think being, like I said, I'm Marty Fish, I think having this sort of relatively unrounded existence that certainly Naomi has and certainly other players certainly have have had as well within tennis uh, can make it tougher at times for sure. And yeah, it's, you know, Naomi, 
I interviewed Naomi as I talked about in the book before she was top hundred when she was eighteen, and even then I was not the first. You know that same tournament at the at the twenty sixteen Australian Open. She also did, there was also I did a New York Times profile on her at that tournament. There was also a USA Today profile that Nick McCarville did in qualies during that tournament. Uh, there was also you know she already won uh, Rising Stars, which was the brief uh next gen ish kind of uh next gen basically was taken from rising stars basically and the rising stars stopped but um she won the tournament too she'd always had already had this weird small but distinct star turn in stanford where she beat sam stoser kind of out of nowhere uh in that tournament and that's what got her the attention of of agents uh for the first time or you know or age uh sponsors rather than agents she had an agent but she got her first big contract with adidas after that um yeah, so so it's it's a it's a break. Everything is kind of this is another thing I think is an overarching point in the in the book. Everything's kind of double edged, you know. You get this you get this this prize, whether it's a sponsorship or uh, money or or fame, whatever it may be. But it comes with these negative strings attached. You can get really tangled up in, and I think that's that's one of the yeah through lines of the book for sure. Yeah, and. I am certain, and you've been on the podcast circuit, justifiably so, because again, Alex Gruskin, 1270 XYT, Crack Racket Station, Naomi Osaka, her journey to finding her power and her voice, Ben Rothenberg's the author and the guest here. That's the last time, listeners, I'll do that. I promise. But <laughs> it is, yeah, I can't start. I, I just think it's funny. This you, gotta, I, you, you be, I have n- never stopped, never changed, never, you, never stopped being goofy. I you know this when I get a bit, I pound that bit to the dirt. Like you are, you are quite I've a ham. This. It's tremendous. I've, yes. I've told this story on other shows, but this is a bit now I do, and it's a guaranteed laugh from people who haven't heard it before. So I'm pretty sure I'm going to get a laugh from you here. I call him, I I did this whole shtick on how, and I tell my dad I'm his best friend. I'm like, Dad, I'm your best friend. I'm like, you don't have a lot of friends. I'm excluding mom here in this conversation because obviously that's number one. But like, what other friends do you like get to like yell with, or like you get to tell, hey, Alex, Alex. Shut the f*** up. Um, like, you know, again, I'm the only person in your life you say that to. I'm your best friend. And he goes, and only pure Michael Gruss confession. He goes, Alex, I wiped your butt. You're not my best friend. You're my son. And I was like, God, that's a good one. That's a good response. And so let the record show. You may not hear laughter. Ben is smiling as I, if he would. I smiled. You've told me the story before. But yeah, it's good. exactly. That's it's why good. you've it's got good. that one. It's that's good. one of my go-to bits. Anyways, as you know, I like to pound a bit to the cloud. That's all my way of saying. But um, – you know, again, through that rise of superstardom, like you've talked about the French Open scene enough. So I'm going to save, you know, again, if you want to hear Ben talk about the reporting around that, the insight he learned, or just pick up the damn book yourself and you can read all about it. But what I found so fascinating, and maybe you have been asked about this as well, I really liked the Serena Miami match story. Not mm. this, not the Serena U.S. You know, again, that's you quoted how, it earlier. Yeah, yeah, that's a, that was one of my favorite parts of, because that to me was actually like I don't want to say Naomi's finest moment in this book, but like that was a moment where everything she was going through resonated most with me. One of those moments where it was just a whirlwind. You have this Indian Wells run. You have this Miami run. And just like, I think that was simultaneous, right? I'm not blending. It was back to back. Yeah, yeah. 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 And it's all kind of coming at once. And it just felt like that was such a formative, like month-long stretch in Naomi's career. Talk to me about what you learned in reporting that, you know, again, three, four-week run. Yeah, it's a really remarkable time because Naomi had never won any tournament that was like an officially designated tournament. She never won a 10K. She never won, never won a 25K. She won uh, Rising Stars, which was an exhibition, like a four-player 
on Robin XO, and she lost two matches there, actually. So she'd never gone through a tournament undefeated yeah. uh, previous to this. And so she, yeah, she wins Indian Wells, and she has a really tough draw at Indian Wells, too. I mean, she had made fourth round of Australian Open, so she was playing well, uh, you know, getting a little bit of a little bit of talk. She beat Barty at the Australian Open in, in 2018, so that was a good win for her before she went out pretty meekly to Halep. Then she goes to to Indian Wells, and see if I can from memory, I can remember who she beat. She beats Sharapova first round, also, also immediately big blockbuster first round match, and she wins it. Sharapova fires her coach afterwards. Uh, then she beats Redvanska in the second round, already a crazy first two, two matches at the play. Sharapova and Redvanska. Then she beats, in some order, uh, she beats Vickery third, was having a good run there too. Then she beats Sakari, then she beats Pliskova, then she beats Halep, and then she beats uh, Kasakina in the final. And it was a a really tough run, and she was great. And she like, you know, barely was losing sets in that tournament. She was she was just on fire and and finished this tournament very strong in the semis and final over Halep and 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 uh, Kasakina. And then she goes into and then she first round in Miami. Who does she play? But her idol Serena Williams. <laughs> Neither of them get buys, which is crazy <laughs> for both of them in Miami. And they, they play each other the first round. And they play maybe three days later, and yeah, and she wins that match. She and Serena is it's only her second tournament back from from pregnancy and she's not in great shape and 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 not feeling great and naomi is in the best confidence of her life and and it's a really striking match and I'm, I'm, you mentioned the thing about venus in the hallway earlier that was a reference yeah. to that 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 day and serena drives off and runs the stop sign and she's leaving <laughs> it's my favorite parts um it's, it's just on the hbo documentary yeah. <laughs> and uh and yeah she uh, yeah, and then Naomi has this. And we're gonna carry this around to Charleston, I imagine. One of the things that happens for her because of these wins is that she makes enough money that her her mom is able to retire to stop working. Mm-hmm. And her mom was not super old; her mom was in her forties, I believe, this time. But Naomi had really been so um, struck and so driven by how much her mom was working and sacrificing while the father was not working, while the father was just on the courts with his daughters all the time making movies also and stuff as well um that the mom was working these all these jobs and and nami anyway was able to to convince her mom to stop working after winning any walls and also knowing the contracts are going to come with that too it's not just the million something prize money that but also just knowing that your stock is really rising and that lots of deals are coming and you're hitting incentives and all this sorts of stuff is is going really well for her and so she i mean the two main things you could do to be a star in those days were to win a big tournament or beat Serena Williams, and she did both like in a week, and it was huge. And anyway, and then she has this this letdown, and I want to get to that part too. But in Charleston, she suddenly hits this emotional wall, um, and really starts um, trying to figure out why you know ha- doesn't have this motivation for her mom anymore. All of a sudden, that which has been always driving her, and she just has this real identity to use that word again crisis that she doesn't know why she's playing and what she should be doing. And it's this really dark moment of feeling depressed. She used that word and she's like, should I stop being a tennis player? Should I go off and and become a farmer or something? And just, you know, and her mind is racing and, and she feels lost. And it's this really public moment where she's on court, you know, weeping uh, in her in her matches uh, against uh, Yulia Gerges, especially her final match there. And so it's a it's a yeah and that's a really brief ride but then that's a that little trio of tournaments uh is, is striking hopefully it's a yeah striking part of the book as well nailed it and that's where i want to go for my final couple of questions here and i promise only two more oh, we're done oh, oh my gosh well, just getting started fun fact it's been 47 minutes i did say okay. 40 yeah exactly that's okay. believe whatever me. you want your show your show no do you have more I, i'll keep going i got plenty of questions whatever, whatever you, you want whatever you All want right. 
You know what? First of all, listeners know <laughs> when I say a few more questions, that means, okay, half hour left. Perfect. Okay. Uh, fine, so fine. we're right where I need to be. But you mentioned something there, and you're right. I keep going back, and this is why it's the first question I asked you, because I think this is a story about identity more than anything else, and that's in the title, Naomi Osaka, Her Journey to Finding Her Power and Her Voice. I think if you went to Naomi Osaka and you said, Naomi, what do you want out of life? She would not have an answer for you. She would like she would stumble to be like, I think I want this or actually I think I want this. And what I say why I think she would stumble isn't because she doesn't have goals for herself, isn't because she doesn't set out to accomplish things. I think she like almost in the sense of she's an overthinker. Like, it just feels like every moment it's something new. And if she sees any sort of opportunity, she feels obliged to capitalize on it, to, you know, again, to do all of these different things. And I just like, sometimes when I come off of this book, my one of the takeaways is, I don't really know what Naomi Osaka wants in life. Like, she wants to leave a legacy, but she's not sure how she wants to do it. And by the way, I, you could argue that's the struggle of every human ever. And I, I was going to say, that's a hard yeah. question for anybody to answer. Which, by the way, is sometimes why I get a little frustrated with Naomi in this book, because sometimes I feel as though she feels as though her struggles are not relatable. And that's why I love this book so much, because I think it will allow tennis fans to say, hey, that uncertainty you have about your future, that uncertainty about what you think about what you want to accomplish in life, that's the same uncertainty I, as a 28-year-old in this game, you know, again, yeah. I love college tennis. Do I want to be college calling college tennis matches my whole life? I don't know if that's the answer. Do I want to be recording three different podcasts a day for the next 25 years? God, I f- hope not. Like, what do I want to accomplish in life that's a real question that to your point i would imagine even you post publishing a book what do you do next it's what we're all wondering and like sometimes i just wonder if she's overthinking things ben like if that might just be straight up her biggest problem in life is like and i'm not saying she can do this because she might get drug tested but like man just chill like just like sometimes i think that might be the best thing for her is just relax like because her de- and it goes full circle here and i apologize i'm editorializing and i'm not allowing you to answer questions but that's fine let Keep the record going. show ben was so kind to send me an advanced copy of the book so that i could read it and be prepared for this podcast and help properly promote it which i hope i am doing and you can you can judge me afterwards um ben well i'll give you time to criticize my critiques um but no i i yeah. look i'm glad that you um, if I'm hopefully not cutting you off too much, but no. like I think that I'm glad you found her relatable in the end. It's what I really yes. got out of that whole that whole spiel there, because you're right. Like she has these moments, and she doesn't always realize because of a lot of the social isolation she had growing up, yes. and because of not talking to other people, that she what she's feeling is often fairly universal in the doubt she had. And this is something that made her this huge culturally resonant person to skip ahead to the 2021 French Open mm-hmm. when she admitted she was struggling and just didn't want to do things and was stepping back. All these people were saying how they related to her and how she was this sort of, and including like Simone Biles, even, you know, this is, this is, you know, the Tokyo Olympics wound up being framed around Naomi largely in her mental health struggles. That was one of the predominant themes going into those Tokyo Olympics for sure, which were a very unusual and weird Olympics in a lot of ways uh, during the pandemic. And yeah, and so, and so Naomi has that power to relate to people and to, and to be vulnerable and open and honest in this way that people have related to. And I think she's still learning that, you know, what she's going through can be more common than she thinks. And sometimes it's not, you know, sometimes, sometimes she misjudges that a bit. And that's also like the French open thing again. I think that she did think that she was, 
kind of starting a rallying cry that other players would follow. That didn't really happen at all. Mm-hmm. Other players did not agree with her stance on uh, the media, uh, certainly publicly, and were not sympathetic to her her saying that it was you know injurious and bad and bad for mental health. And players were not co-signing that. So um that she miscalculated for sure but other times she's had ways of being relatable and you know even just in being awkward and shy that lots of awkward shy introverts she's their hero you know and one of the parts i don't have in the book that i would have would have liked to have had but the book is obviously plenty long as you're aware (laughs) um is that it's telling more on naomi fans like there's this really interesting like you sort of talk about what kind of personality types gravitate towards which tennis stars. And there are pretty clear lanes a lot of times, you know, like there's a certain kind of person who is a uh, Djokovic fan, for sure. There's a certain kind of person who is a Serena fan. And Naomi certainly has her own archetype of people who are really Naomi fans. And a lot of times they are, you know, shy indoor kids who are are more comfortable online than they are in person and who have those sort of same quirks that she does. And, and that's interesting to see. So she, yeah, she does have a, a tribe out there in her own way. That's you didn't cut me off. That's exactly where I was leading. Is you almost feel if someone told Naomi, "Hey, these struggles you're going through, you're not alone." And if that message could get through, you just wonder how much less complicated things might be for her. And I'm just wondering if you think the reporting that you have done, again, knowing her family, and you mentioned this quote earlier, like for a lot of her life, she's known three people: her parents and her sister. Do you think there's someone in her life doing the reporting for this book that's telling her that? Do you think, like, coming out of this process, do you think Naomi Osaka has the support team around her, has the foundation now reestablished to be more comfortable in her skin moving forward, to grow into the person that she wants to become, whomever that person is down the line? I think so. I, I think, I think that. I think things look good currently for her on that front. And that's actually there's one part of the book that was not in the version that you got, which is an interview I did because um, you got an early version of the book, uh, which is 95% the same, at least. But um, there are a few the, like typos that I almost said. Oh, there's, like, yeah, hey. there's definitely typos. Yeah, yeah, yeah. There's definitely some typos in, in, in your version. Hopefully, most of them did not make it into the final version. I found one typo today and I was like, oh, God. So hopefully, people don't spot it too much. Um, yeah, there was uh, or it was the wrong word. It's not a typo per se. Yeah. It's just the wrong wrong word in there. Did some some bad math, but um, yes, there. You know, I was talking to Wim Fassett, who's her coach, and I've been messaging with him. You know, last few weeks, and he's very very happy and very confident with her direction. And also, the, the section that's not in the book I was alluding to is why he came back, basically. Uh, his decision to rejoin and what, after having doubts about Naomi majorly in 2022 and her lack of direction, but what sort of convinced him to come back and what he sees from her and hear, is hearing from her when he talks to her early on. And he does say, and I actually don't know the answer to this currently, but he does say that it's a, was a thing he wanted to have in the team this year was have a better support structure for mental health and whether it's some sort of performance coach or, or psych, traveling psychologist or whatever, or, you know, just on mental coach, whatever terminology you want to use, someone on the team to help attend to that part. And, you know, that can be there. Um, and I think that, you know, hopefully Naomi and her team have have learned from from the past and learned from doing things uh, in ways that were, were tough and they can find, they can build something that's sustainable in the future. And time, only time will tell. I mean, who knows? We don't, we don't know how it's going to be. We don't know how she's going to respond. We don't know her results, first of all, on court when she's going to be on court very soon. In Brisbane, we don't know her 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 results, and we don't know how she's going to respond to both success and failure. Right, both of them require uh, re- different responses and different kinds of processing, and neither both come with their own challenges. So, 
I'm interested to see. We don't know. Yeah. As we're recording this Thursday, December 28th, tennis is underway in Australia. United Cup getting started. We're not that far away from Naomi Osaka making her return to the court as well. And certainly that's something we all look forward to. In the meantime, we're all going to read Ben Rothenberg's Naomi Osaka, her journey to finding her power and her voice. Alex Gruskin here, 1270, Cracked Racket Station. Ooh, it slipped in again, Ben. Um... In doing this reporting, Ben gave me a face that I wish all of you listeners could see. Maybe we should have done this on video. I love it. I love it. I love, I, your, 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 your brand of nonsense is really beautiful. I know. It's, it's, I hate to say it, but I actually think my strike zone is make you laugh. Like, just be just goofy enough to, you know, again, you talked about Naomi Osaka drawing out a certain type. I like to think you're my type. But humans, I like to be around as well. And so, again, Thank you. like I said, you're my podcasting big brother. I just want to impress you and make you laugh. I am curious because you certainly got comments from other players. You certainly took the time to say, hey, you know, again, and not just players, but agents and various entities in the tennis world you wanted to know their perceptions of Naomi as well so that it wasn't just your opinion what you see again I thought you did a really good job of incorporating all of those things I am curious and I want to start with the players in particular her fellow WTA peers from Serena all the way down what do you think their perception of Naomi's story is because you have this player who on one sense of uh, on one side of things when she shows up and she's at her best, as you detail in the book, that best is better than everyone else's. Like that power just overwhelms you. And it is very clear her peers, like whenever it starts talking about tennis, they are profuse with praise and very clear. Like even her younger coaches whom maybe she scorned through, like the coach who had the 20% contract or whatever was like, yeah, we saw her ball striking right away. And we were like, yeah, 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 yeah. Sign this person up. Like we'd be willing to tolerate that. At the same time, you know, again, you kind of mentioned it earlier. It's not as though they rallied to her defense. Certainly some did, but not everyone did over the 2021 French Open press conference scenario. And look, again, tennis players are self-centered. You almost have to be in this individual sport. You have to be self-obsessed to try and convince yourself to be the very best in this game. What do you think the player's perception of, uh, of Naomi is? And, you know, again, what were you trying to communicate in that sense in this book? Look, I think that she is an enigma to them Mm -hmm. largely. Um, and like you said, respect it. Certainly, they respect the game. Certainly, they can respect the four slams on the wall. Like they, they yeah. see that. That is that is undeniable. She's still, she's won more uh, Grand Slam titles than anyone else born in the '90s, man or woman. Yeah. Still at four. Crazy. You know. I like, also want to interject just quickly. Apologies yeah. for cutting you off. One of my favorite lines. Favorite lines in the book. She did the two things that matter. She won a big event and she beat Serena. I was just like, Ben's back. I was like, that's a Ben <laughs> Rothenberg freaking writing. I was like, oh. I did actually yeah, paraphrase that earlier. Yeah, about yeah. that. That that's to me. That's true. No, she did. And 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 winning a slam, right? In US Open too, the same thing. She beat Serena and won a slam at the same time too. That was also what made part of what made her her launch so uh celestial and you know into huge orbit that she hit from that 2018 years that we've been talking about the US Open final and that was obviously a huge part of her story and the book and all the controversy there. But you were asking me about something else which was um her other, other what other players think about her. Yes. And look like I talked to uh Kasek, well one of the things was interesting about the book is that being around in 2022 where I was shadowing her but she wasn't playing much and she pulled out <laughs> a bunch of tournaments I was at is I had a lot of time to ask a lot of other players about Naomi and lots of them were it was a mix. Some players don't like talking about other players, especially WTA. 
Um, some players were like, eh, I don't, not really interested in this and not going to give you much. And other players were super open and, 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 and insightful. And Kazakina, I, I remember, I don't know what to come to mind first, but she, I talked to her in Berlin, actually, I remember, and about the Indy Wells final they put against each other. And she was saying how, you know, they took this private jet to, from Indy Wells to Miami together. Uh, and like Naomi didn't talk. Like, <laughs> like there's this whole, that's part of this, this scene in the book where Naomi's it's like yeah. psyching herself up to talk to Kazakina on the jet and she just can't do it. And, mm-hmm. And, you know, and she also did, Naomi also has this thing that several players mentioned, a lot of players mentioned, and Naomi wears the headphones in the locker room all the time. It's sort of a, a visual, like, kind of don't talk to me shield, which Naomi has said is intentional. Like, she's shy, and the shields are, the, or the, sorry, the head, that big uh, headphones, Beats usually headphones are, are kind of her her shield or her armor around her ears being like, just don't approach me. And, you know, if she if someone made an effort, I think she'd probably be, wouldn't be rude about it, but it's kind of her just basic line of defense that she puts up and lots of shy people do that as well too, whether there's music playing or not, just something kind of give you some, some space. So I think they think she's, I think they think she's an enigma. I think they think that she uh, makes so much money. You know, the money is real. The sort of the jealousy that can engender and the attention that can engender is, is very real. And that's part of why people were not sympathetic to her during that French open. And I wrote this in the book and uh, it's definitely true. You know, one, it's like she did her statement, about not wanting to press conferences one or two days after there was a report out that she made 50, $50 million in endorsements, yeah. you know, the previous, in the previous 12 months. And that did not make her a sympathetic character to a lot of players. Um, so yeah, there's, it's a mix. Uh, Game wise, certainly I think they, they know how good she can be at her best and they are, you know, worried about what she can do. It's funny, just recently Reem Abelail, I think was interviewing uh, Shviantek, uh in at the, uh, whatever this EXO event was in Abu Dhabi. And, uh, asked her about uh, Naomi coming back, and she was like, "Well, we'll see. Like, you know, like huh. if she's good, she can be really like it could be a problem." Was <laughs> kind of the tone, but like if she's not, I mean, who knows? But like, she's like, "I have to, I have to worry about that one." And that was like yeah. sort of like I know what she can bring. I I respect the the potential that Naomi has uh, as at her best for sure. So um, it'll be interesting to see how that all shakes out on court in twenty twenty four. Yeah, yeah. You've alluded to some of these again. I uh, read the book. There, uh, there. I'm I, the reason I don't want to re-ask Ben these questions is some of you may have seen Ben's been on the podcast circuit, and I'm sure other podcasters have asked you about some of these instances specifically. Not I'm too gonna, many so far. Not too many. Not too much overlap. Not, no, but in general, I, I haven't done that much yet. You're getting okay. me. You're still getting me. Pretty, pretty unjaded at this point. You're getting me in December, right? This is pretty good. Anyone... I'm going to really have not stopped talking for the next several weeks. So you're getting me when things are pretty fresh and new, I think, for the most part. Here. Has anyone else done the radio bit yet? No, definitely okay. not. Okay. You have to text me if someone else does the radio bit, though, or in the podcast say, look, you do this well, but Gruskin does it better. Anyways. I might actually be on an actual radio station. Yeah, that's <laughs> I know. That's what I'm really hoping for. Um, I'm getting you prepared, Ben. This is actually you getting ready for them to go. Ben Rothenberg joining us. Naomi Osaka, her journey to finding her power and her voice is the book. What I'd be lost without you. Thank you. Yeah. Yeah. What was... <laughs> hey, you know, Brett Haber used to do DC radio, so clearly there's a tennis tie there. You're a DC man, and who knows? Maybe you do get the call up to the station. Here's what I want to ask. Moving forward, 
What do you think will be the more formative experience for Naomi that shapes how she approaches things moving forward? That 2018 U.S. Open, all the controversy surrounding mm-hmm. her beating Serena Williams in that final. The 2020 U.S. Open, which again was maybe the first time we saw her find her voice in her journey and speaking up for a social cause. Obviously, Black Lives Matter and, you know, again, the seven different masks in the wake of George Floyd's death. Her uh, willingness to go out on a limb in a sport where, to your point, we just don't see people do that very frequently. And tennis is ex- extraordinarily conflict averse. And Naomi Osaka wanted to bring conflict to the floor fight uh, to the forefront because she had the platform to do so. And yeah. it's a credit to her for doing so. Obviously, we praised her profusely at the time. You have those two U.S. Open experiences. Plus this third experience of the French Open, where again, she had built up all this equity. She had in her head perhaps built up all of this goodwill, only to see that sort of burst in one press conference skipping decision. Which of those three do you think shapes the Naomi Osaka? Oh, of those three will shape her most moving forward? It's an interesting question. Uh, I definitely gotten that question before. I, you know, she's a mix of all of her experiences in totality. And certainly those are three of the big red letter ones for sure that I dwell on in the book and explore in the book and how they shaped and changed her trajectory. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. You know, the French Open one is maybe the most recent and immediate. And bluntly, her stats since that moment have not been great. And there's a basic win loss. I think she had something like an 18 and 12 record on tour which is fairly mediocre for someone of her, of her, of her star power sure. um, since that moment where she admitted she was struggling mentally and, and stepped back from the tournament and had that standoff. It's been, it's been tough for her. Um, so that, so that is something, you know, we'll see how she, if it's a real clean slate in 2024 or not, well, time will only time will tell. Uh, but at the same time, I do think that the, the 2020 U S open, it's all. It's maybe the answer you wanted, but it's, it's certainly, <laughs> it's certainly. I think the one that is her at the peak of her powers yes. in a lot of ways, and that's the one that I think she would that she would want for sure to be the one that she emulates most because that was her finding motivation in this cause in Black Lives Matter and in that summer and 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 just and social justice and racial justice, all those things that she was feeling empowered by and those names that were on her masks, on her face as she walked onto the court, the seven names. And she had this really unique, unprecedented for me way of, of using that not as pressure, but as, as motivation, as this not weighing her down, but it was a platform that she sort of stood on the shoulders of those stories. And and if she'd done anything but win that tournament, she was going to get dragged for, you know, uh, for letting herself get distracted by politics and off-court stuff and would have gotten completely, completely, lots of like, there would have been lots of uh, people taunting her afterwards, honestly, bluntly, because people, you know, certainly right-wing commentators love criticizing athletes for mixing politics and sports and, you know, various, you know, go woke, go broke kind of, kind of, kind of taunts <laughs> yeah. that people get. And Naomi has gotten those herself too at various times in her career um, from the obvious suspects in right-wing media uh, in the U S especially, and not just the U S but certainly in the U S a lot, but certainly like Piers Morgan and everyone else. Anyway, uh, that, those people, those, that course is very much aware of her. And yeah, I, so I think that was the one that she would like to see the most that she can find, Potentially, and she can just play for, for playing tennis sake, but she does always, she has said, and it's something she said very recently actually too, she always wants to play for something beyond herself. And now okay. for her, this is going to be, in the short term, we haven't talked much about this part of her life at all, but for her, it's her new daughter, you know, who okay. she just gave birth in, in July to Shy, 
maybe shy and, and sort of saying she feels like she's playing for for shy now uh coming back to tour so that's her current motivation but yeah keeping keep but keeping some sort of motivation going and maybe it may be shy and her her family will be a lasting motivation at this point her the generation younger than her now suddenly instead of her, her mom as it was previously but uh but yeah it'll be interesting to see how how her, that motivation evolves because certainly that 2020 us open what she did there is still remarkable that's really why this book exists was me having that reaction to that that moment let, let the record show i don't want you to answer the question in any fashion when i make a face it's because that would be my answer to my own question okay, so fair, it's, when fair, you, fair. it's when you confer my <laughs> suspicions that uh, i i get the smile on my face and the reason i bring up that 2020 u.s open is because again finding her journey finding her power her journey to finding her power and her voice excuse me 2020 is when she found it like that 2020 u.s open dare i say like that moment with the different masks, obviously, to speak up again in support of a cause that she so thoroughly believed in, which, again, we don't have to get into the politics of Black Lives Matter. That's that's not what the – you know, she's supporting the idea that there is police brutality towards, again, mm-hmm. ethnic minors all across the country and speaking out for those people who otherwise would be marginalized and not have the ability to speak for themselves, her ability to do that. We commended it profusely at the time. I will continue to commend it to this day. For someone with so much uncertainty and it feels like filtering through her head at so uh, so frequently, someone with so much doubt, there was a moment of clarity there where you yeah. mentioned it. She had purpose. She had uh, inspiration. Like just every adjective you could be looking for to bring out the best in someone, that's what Naomi Osaka was feeling in that moment. And I just feel like those – Three to four weeks, she was in that New York bubble. Western and Southern Open, U.S. Open, back-to-back, played in New York in 2020. I I just feel like that's the only time I've seen her comfortable in her skin. Like, being exactly who she wants to be, f*** what anyone else thinks. And I just think that brought out the best of her. And again, we've talked about her being introverted, the fact that she named her daughter Shy, like... Come on now. We, we The jokes write themselves <laughs> like that. We haven't talked about that yet. Come on now. Um, but I just think like – I think 2020 US Open Naomi Osaka is who she wants to be. And I'm worried that her fighting for a cause she believed in, mental health, 2021 French Open, and getting rebuffed, like does that prevent her – from trying to fight for another cause she believes in as she did at that 2020 U.S. Open. Obviously, we've seen her launch the agency. We've seen her, you know, again, continue to try to build for the future. But I just felt like 2020 Naomi was the purest form of Naomi. And I believe it's at that U.S. Open where she comforts a sad co- – or maybe it wasn't that one, but the next one. Where Coco the year Cup, before. Yeah, year yeah, the year before, exactly. Like Those are two instances I would point to where I actually think that's her – at her most confident and her most comfortable. And I just wonder how we get that Naomi moving forward. Actually, Naomi did an interview uh, this year with Allison Felix as a sprinter. Sure. And she was asked this sort of the conceit of, of that podcast, Felix's podcast was but naming your like mountaintop moments. Moments you feel like you feel at the peak of your powers or feeling sure. the best. And, and she names the Coco Golf interview actually at the 2019 sure. uh, US. It was an interesting moment and kind of like, and Coco like didn't, had, had more, more mixed emotions about it and the whole sure. thing than than it were maybe reported at the time or and it was interesting talking to her about that actually in that moment. I think it's an, it's a moment that it kind of aged interestingly. It's it's mm-hmm. it's a more it's a strange moment in a lot of ways that moment 
for sure. Um, I'm actually, if I can briefly ask you something, I'm curious because you mentioned gave me these three options, these seminal moments. The 2018 US Open, we haven't talked about the final. That's obviously a huge moment for her. I'm curious what you thought just reading the book about that, if that made you feel any different about uh, revisiting that 2018 US Open final, which was obviously such a huge lightning rod moment in the sport. I mean, it's an excellent question for you to bring up. And I think the relationship, as you describe it, between Naomi and Serena is just a little fascinating sub-ripple that, again, I could do a full hour on. And Mm -hmm. I'm sure there will be lesser podcasters who don't actually read the book from cover to cover who ask you about that (laughs) specifically, superficially, as opposed to trying to get into the weeds as we have here. Um, So I'm going to save that for when you I love all podcasters equally. Anyone wants to have me on, I'm happy to do whatever. I don't, so I'm going to call them out by name. When you go on the tennis podcast and they ask you that basic question, you can know, I'm just kidding. That was a joke come on we can have fun here Uh, i'm gonna quack out by the way the name of the title of the podcast i said so that no (laughs) one's gonna get to know that's just Um, cowardly okay okay leave it in west off no quack i'll say it again when the tennis podcast asks you that basic question nothing against the tennis podcast for me here me neither by the way i keep Someone's got to make the first DM. I asked them a couple of years ago. They never responded and scorned me once. Shame on you. I'm not going back. I asked if they wanted to do a home and home. And the offer still stands. Catherine, David, if the third one, if you're still listening, um, whose name I'm blanking on right Matt now. Matt Roberts is great. Yes, yeah. thank you. Seems like a really nice guy. Um, <laughs> the third one. Sometimes I make myself laugh. It's a really tough first moment for her. Like Again, it's the genesis of it all, and we talked about it earlier. Indian Wells, Miami, U.S. Open. Like, it all just happened so fast. And I don't like, I don't want to cri- – I'm criticizing Naomi and Serena in the same podcast. I just want the fans to love me after this. Serena was a little cold towards Naomi early on. Like, I don't think it's unfair to say that. And maybe it wasn't intentional, and certainly you reveal details beyond what they – just their interactions on the court that sort of – unpack this relationship further but yeah like to almost feel regret in winning your first major like here's again where she feels so relatable I refuse to play sports or compete against my older brother now because I know I'm going to beat him and like when I beat Eric no one wins because it's just like he's so miserable to be around after that it's like why would I want to even put myself in that scenario to where I can beat him again and like that's why now we're always on the same team because then we all win because uh, as you know I'm a winner Ben I win mm-hmm. um, sure but I guess to me that was my biggest takeaway from the 2018 experience is like she felt regret in victory and like just talk about such a, a experience to have so early yeah, and it was that was one thing that I'm glad you honed in on that was really kind of lost in the whole Serena versus the umpire controversy and why and, and Naomi being unhappy, be, crying on the podium, and, and obviously the noise of the crowd was 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 real and was was traumatizing. Mm-hmm. Generally, people I had some people I talked to who were in the stadium that day who were just like that was I've never been anywhere like that. That was horrible. Like mm-hmm. people who like USTA like staffers who were like I had to leave. Like, I like snuck yeah. out of that stadium. I was like I can't take this anymore. Mm-hmm. It was awful. Um, uh, and, and then just people didn't know who like turned into like, people throwing things or like some sort of more mobbish, violent scene. Honestly, with how with how angry the energy was in there. But amid all of that and all of that controversy, which which sucked up so much cultural oxygen for days uh, later, that helped build this fire that launched again Naomi into this crazy orbit that you wouldn't normally get from just winning the U.S. Open or even just beating Serena in the U.S. Open final. It was this whole next level thing. There 
was uh, this part of Naomi that was also devastated to have to stop her hero from winning a 24th Grand Slam. Mm-hmm. You know, she she was sad to beat Serena. She was sad that she made Serena lose, and and Serena never got that 24th Grand Slam. Mm-hmm. And, you know, that was tough for, for Naomi to process at times, for sure. Which is weird, to, which is, again, not part of being a competitor in the classic sense. But, yeah, we haven't talked about Serena much in this episode, but... Serena is a huge character, uh, this huge presence in Naomi's life that all the time. That this really is this kind of guiding light, North Star kind of person a lot of times. Yeah, that's it, it, you're exactly right. And again, in that moment, to see Serena, who, for those that don't remember, and you're going to do the details better than I can, can you describe again, for those that have forgotten what happened in that 2018 U.S. Open final, the conflict between Serena I think and people the remember it pretty well, largely. But basically, Serena got a series of code violations, starting yeah. with one that she got for co- from coaching from the stands from Patrick Mortogli, which was. Uh, set off this whole dispute between her right. and and chair empire Carlos Ramos and and with her getting a, another code violation of racket abuse for a point penalty and then a, a verbal abuse uh, for calling Ramos a thief for a game penalty and just really ugly scenes of booing and stuff and and yeah just got relitigated because this huge cultural flashpoint and this is where to again bring it full circle We've talked about this before. I don't remember if it's you or David Kane, our dear friend, who coined this phrase on this podcast. I think it was DK who, when referring to Bianca Andreescu, and this sounds like a DK quote, talked about how she has main character energy, right? Like that that screams a David Kane quote. Um, and it's, it's right, though. Yeah. And I guess, like, my issue is there were, like, that 2018 U.S. Open Finals, she was the winner. She was not the main character of that story. And I just sometimes wonder, like, in Naomi Osaka's head, I don't know if she's the main character of her own story. Like, there are times when she's certainly the main character of her own story, but I almost think, and not to make, like, an anime reference, which I know she's a fan of, and obviously I've watched in my days as well, but, like, she wants to be one of those really interesting side characters. Like, the one who, like, Mm. is the story, is she the name of the title in the story? No, but she's the one that everyone comes off like, ooh, that was the most interesting character. And just, like, again, to not be the main character in your first major title is just, talk about a formative experience that kind of, like, you feel regret about winning, that which you cannot feel in this sport. You Again, because it's an individual sport, you don't have teammates to ki- turn to. You're the one who's got to win the last point. You're the one who's got to cut the proverbial throat and, you know, again, knock out that person across the net from you. You even talk about it in the Miami instance when she's facing Serena and she's like, oh, my God, that's Serena across the net. And she even tweets out the photo after them shaking hands and it's OMG. I just beat, you know, again, that's all it is. Not I just beat Serena. Like this is this in- exceptional moment. It's no, just OMG, and a, just a photo of her, Serena, sharing a court. Like, you're right. That, I just, I, and I, I again, I, I think I said earlier that the relationship between Serena and Naomi was cold. What I meant by that was, is early on, Serena's not looking at Naomi Osaka as, oh, this is this superstar competitor who, like, is the future of the sport, is going to be this voice for women's empowerment moving forward. I have to do everything power, possible in my power to mentor her. No, early on, Serena's like, this is the player who's going to stop me from getting to 24. And like, to your point, to some extent, I know Serena makes the back-to-back 2019 slam finals and did have two more shots at 24, but like that might've been her, ah, I mean, she lost two and two to Halep in a Wimbledon final. That was coming from nowhere. And so I actually thought that was her best shot of the three, but still like the four. Yeah. uh, Oh yeah. Of the four. Excuse. I don't know. Like, I don't know. It's just that that main character energy. I think Naomi Osaka at times has it, but I don't know if she wants to have it. 
This is the identity thing you started with too. I mean, yeah. there's this conflict within her too about being about wanting to be shy versus wanting to be a, a superhero, superstar, and those exactly. are conflicting push pull emotions within her at all times, and she's still wrestling with that. And she had talked about kind of you know, kind of character, like in an anime sense. Uh, you know, she talks some. She's been asked a few times, like what kind of characters, and she does like making anime references. And yeah. there could be more anime in the book, actually. If I was more honest, if I was more conversant than I thought the readers were more conversant <laughs> than that. Uh, there'd be more more anime stuff, but she. I um, wanted a little more. I'm not gonna lie. She. That's fair. That's fair. She wanted. Um, she like one time compared herself. You know, when she she's very self deprecating a lot of times too. Like when she when she got asked like, what, what which fictional character you most relate to, she picked Snorlax because uh it's the pokemon because <laughs> it's like good. big and big and slow yeah. and just like kind of sleepy and just, you know that was like how she sees herself but powerful and, that's a good and power one. and powerful powerful when you want to be but mostly yeah. like very grown but then like has this like awakening i'm gonna be honest power. that's an elite comparison from Naomi. that's really well done yeah yeah so that's so that's the kind of thing that like, she wants to see herself yes. as kind of like it's like underestimated sleepy kind of figure who has this power within her not like loud showboat person and and andrescu you mentioned briefly just has this unreal charisma and stage yeah. presence that kids that call naomi, it riz nowadays but charisma works too. yeah but i mean riz is slightly more specific but yes uh, it's it's uh <laughs> don't, don't make me teach you how to use riz Gruskin. come on what are we doing here uh, anyways yeah. but uh <laughs> but but yeah but but, but yeah andrescu certainly has riz and charisma if you want to say that she she has that but she has that magnetism and that star power and just that and and naomi has that in a very different way naomi's a, a quirkier more unexpected sort of stage presence and and com- what makes her compelling it's less obvious in some ways than uh, andrescu very well said again she's an introvert who wants to take on the role and balance between you're absolutely right being just let me do my own thing let me put my headphones on I don't want to talk to you fans. Let me fo- like let me just get in the zone versus being the superhero, being the superstar. Understand. Well, just quickly to finish that example, being the person at Indian Wells who sees the practice session fans and says, "No, of course I'm going to stay here and sign every single one of your autographs before you leave." Like yeah. you're a hundred percent correct. You have the two Naomi's. I was struck by that person, by that part of Naomi, by watching her, spending a lot more time around her in 2022, and like going to practices, going to see her do, you know, work the autograph line after hitting sessions, which I had never done before. I don't usually do before, obviously, with players. I usually focus. And yeah, she was very given with that. I want to say on Serena, though, I do think this book, you know, Serena, you mentioned the family a lot, and they're the sort of three characters. Serena is, you know, in that top five, certainly, of most important people in Naomi's life and, and characters and people who shaped her life. And she's a big part of this book. And so... Uh, yeah, I think there's a lot for people who watch Serena and sort of also this last chapter of Serena's career. I think it's a fascinating sort of lion in winter sort of moment for, for people to see Serena that hasn't been written about before. So I think it's an interesting, I think Serena, hopefully for Serena fans or just fans of women's tennis, Serena as a character and her own path arc through this book, I think is hopefully pretty compelling. I think she'd get nominated for best supporting actress bid. Like, I think she'd get a little shout at the Emmys, uh, like for her role in this novel. That's a good call. It's a good call. It's like an Oscar bait supporting role. If this was was a novel based on fiction and in the movies, yeah, she would indeed get that role. Um, I see we have your lovely dog. Call named do i know your betty. name? betty betty Bet- here. Yeah. betty has joined so that's that's the cue that's probably time for me to exit stage left but betty was here- scratching on the door i didn't know if you could yeah. hear her so no i i could not your audio sounds wonderful leave all of this conversation in west off anyways here's my final question for you and again yeah ben rothenberg joining us the book naomi osaka her journey to finding her power and her voice at crack rackets 1270 xyt the tennis station <laughs> my last question for you 
because obviously, again, we're recording this December 28th. Naomi uh-huh. Osaka is making her return with Wim Fissett in corner post-pregnancy. But I'll tell you what, like, she looks good. Like It looks like there's some focus there. And again, when Naomi Osaka is in form, doesn't matter that there was a year-plus gap between her winning majors. She wins one, then she wins two, then she stops, then she wins three and four, back-to-back again. We know when she finds that rhythm, how dangerous she can be. I don't want to call it a second act because that feels a bit hyperbolic. At the same time, it does she feel like— She that. Exactly, and it feels like this book— that you have written, again, Naomi Osaka, her journey to finding her power and her voice. I'm not going to do the full thing this time, but this book is act number one. This is everything pre-pregnancy. This is who she is. And I'm just curious, do you think we see a pivot as we approach act number two? What do you expect from Naomi Osaka moving forward as you prepare manuscripts for book number two over the next 15 years? (laughs) Gosh, I I do think that this is definitely, uh, I think the way it worked out is a very, uh, convenient and very clear bookend honestly it is it is the real sort of curtain falling on act one of this play at this moment of, of her preparing for her comeback from pregnancy um and yeah she's in this really interesting moment for sure and and she's very ambitious and and optimistic and her team is feeling really good like the talk out of from from coaches and, and team alike the talk is very uh very con- quiet quiet confidence they're not bragging out the shoes but they're they're feeling good they feel good in the soccer, in the soccer camp and and I think she could make some real noise on tour in 2024. Um, and certainly, you know, which she did, just has not in, in a few years. You know, she has not won a title since the 2021 Australian Open. So it'd be nice to see her to win a tournament somewhere and to to get back to winning and 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 to and to be out there enjoying the process and everything as well. It's important to her as well. So hopefully she can she can do that. I think the sport and the sport really needs her. I'll be yeah. honest. I think I think this I think that tennis, women's tennis specifically, but tennis writ large as i say this in the in the epilogue i know if it's in the version you got or not probably is tennis had never had fewer uh household names than it did in like in 2023 without naomi on tour really until coco kind of makes her star tournament winning winning the u.s open just with losing serena with having the dog and federer gone to like it's just this it was this really it's this really sudden break and naomi was supposed to be a stopgap person and she drifted and she faded out for a bit so having her back is is really important for the sport to to reach a, a broader audience it's it's really actually you you for me you can't talk about things like the wta business struggles and the cancun mess and not not finding good hosts for wta finals bids be, without mentioning the lack of star power without mentioning the fact that like people like naomi do affect the bottom line of the tour you know people someone in in london or in tokyo will make a bid for a uh, the finals if they know that a Radu Kanu or an Osaka or whoever is going to be there, you know, like the, this, it's a, such a star driven sport, and Emmy is such a star, and that is maybe you know tough for fans of less famous players to hear bluntly, but it, it's real. Yeah. That stuff yeah. is real. A hundred percent. It's a better place with her, and you know, again, case in point. I think only one play, one tennis player has ever been the Olympic torchbearer. I mean, maybe yeah. they played uh, extra. Yeah. yeah, exactly. Maybe they played extracurricularly, but no, only one full-time professional tennis player, and that's Naomi Osaka, which speaks to her significance on the court, off the court, culturally, politically, socially, economically. We can get into all those things, and I'm sure you will as you go across your book tour. Here's my last question for you, and actually, and yeah. I know you're going to get this from everyone. Best detail you cut. Ooh, best detail I cut. See, this is good because you're going to get this question seven more times and you better have an answer ready. 
And single, I, I tried to keep a lot of like little fun details in there, yeah. like little things like, you know, like how like Serena loses Australian Open and cuts yeah. her Saturday Night Live hosting gig. Like, yeah. those little, like lions, like people don't know maybe that I, I like putting in there. Um, but I kept a lot of the, hopefully kept a lot of that stuff in. Yeah. There was, there was a section, there were a few sections that were like tangential sections that I cut bigger sections, more than details. But like there was a section, this is maybe not the best answer for this question, but yeah, um, I don't know. Well, TBD, how do you feel when I should say it? But but like I, I had a section, for example, on the history of like um, of of black tennis activism in, in over time and like going back to Althea Gibson, how Althea Gibson was like super um, uh, politics averse and did not want to be seen as a symbol for anything and not seen as a torchbearer for any cause or anything like that. And how that evolved over time through the Williamses, who were often really often avoiding politics as, in, in very overt ways uh, throughout their careers and how that changed with Naomi. And that kind of that was a section around the twenty. 2020 us open uh part of her career that was uh meaningful to me just because it was showing you know a very very condensed version of it's in there now and so that's that's the kind of section i would love to find a home for somewhere in the future as a maybe standalone piece somewhere to, to put a lot of that history in because i think it is is cool um you know there's lots of like there's lots of fun like tennis nerd stuff that i could have you know even just obviously the fact that like you know that that she that I get to relevantly quote Stefan Kozlov in this book <laughs> is 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 like I talked to him after he won a Wimbledon Qualies match at, at Roehampton, like requested Kozlov, and I talked to Kozlov outside the tent, standing there with her recorder. <laughs> um, I've known Kozlov for years, obviously, and and so but getting but that he you know that he made it in and other things didn't you know but but he was part of this one of the few witnesses to this early moment of her career of her life. Um, yes, yeah, so there's a lot of I there's a lot of catnip for tennis fans who will see unexpected names or, or things pop up and and just be surprised at how kind of tennis is a small world a lot of times um and you know that she knew darren cahill as a 16 year old and think people wouldn't wouldn't know things like that yeah no really well said and you know again i guess the bonus is what's your favorite detail we didn't talk about tonight favorite detail what one of the like most like incongruous details and then one of the things I was I found early and was really fascinated by in my research was the the movie making. Yeah, sure. Her dad and I have the DVD somewhere somewhere you, in this room. The way I worked in my radio plugs, you worked in. He was busy filmmaking at like various points or details, <laughs> and I, like it always put a smile on my face. I don't know. Yeah, I said at least once on here for sure. Yeah. But yeah, the dad the dad made no no not movies. in this pot. I'm saying in the book. Like you would slip okay. in like you'd be like meanwhile while Mister Osaka or, Le- or Leonard Leo I Leonard, Leonard yeah Leonard yeah. well meanwhile while Leonard was off producing a few films like you'd always just throw in like that little clause and I would always smile. Yeah. No. It it, it is an interesting part and in, in seeing the movie. Um, I mean, Charlie did not get rights, like should, should put screenshots yeah. in the photo section <laughs> of the book. But uh, hopefully, some, hopefully some people those surface at some point in the next coming weeks because they're they're pretty cool. Mm-hmm. Um, just seeing Naomi as a child actress, yeah. just for someone who has been was so shy, it's such an unlikely turn that she would be like the child actress of the <laughs> of the stars and have this and it's like really dark movie too. That's the thing. It's like it's not it's not a goofy movie at all. Did you it's watch a, it? It's a very oh yeah oh yeah <laughs> oh yeah. I watched I watched it uh it's it's uh selfish love it's it's called and she's an imdb page actually it's someone made for her at some point pretty recently the <laughs> name is like an imdb page that includes her early childhood movie acting credit um yeah that's an interesting sort of part that i think a lot of her fans even don't know and haven't seen yeah so you're telling me that the reason we didn't see her in 2023 is she was standing in solidarity with her fellow writers and actors on the- <laughs> <laughs> so that'd, that'd be cute, cute. that'd be and, cute yeah one little one-liner for you before we leave well sincerely and i know i said this at the front end but I mean it sincerely here before we wrap our interview. 
I would not be who I am. I would not have the job that I have if I didn't grow up reading every, like, it was a must, an absolute must in my life. If I saw Ben published an article, I would text my dad, what's the New York Times login? I need it to read this piece. <laughs> he would always send it to me. You'd think I'd have learned save password by now, but for some reason, it just never saved on my phone. And I've missed you, buddy. I missed how it was the first thing I sent you as a text when I received the book, when I opened it up, when I was through the even I think the introduction, Justin, I was like, Ben, you're back. It's good to have you back. And for the last time, I'll say it here tonight. If you haven't already, Naomi Osaka, her journey to finding her power and her voice, a must read for tennis fans, not just listening to this podcast, but across the globe as well. So buy it for yourself. Buy it for your friends. You will not regret that choice. Ben Rothenberg, I love you very much, brother. You are always a pleasure to have on this show. Good luck to you as you go through the book tour. Enjoy Australia back thank on you. the grounds, my friend. And you know you always have an open invitation on our podcast. Well, thank you very much. And yeah, I'm, I'm glad. I'm very glad to hear that you enjoyed it and that my time in the lab was was satisfying for, <laughs> for you. And hopefully it is for other people who, yeah, have not read my stuff. I've been, I guess I've been quiet for, for uh, a while, given my general baseline loudness, definitely quiet by my standards uh, in terms of writing output at the very least. So yeah, hopefully this uh, labor of love shows uh, some, uh, some, some, some worth in that time. And it's like I said, it's a long book. It's, it's a, it's a full, it's a, it's both, uh, you know, I've been told it's a quick read, but people once they, once they actually start reading it. Um, but yeah, it's a, it's a, it's a meaty book. You keep going, you pick it up. You're not going to stop again. Perfect for all of you tennis fans tuning in today. Ben Rothenberg, thank you as always for joining our podcast. Thank you, Alex. Hope all of you enjoyed my conversation with our dear friend here at Cracked Rackets, Ben Rothenberg. And again, I cannot congratulate him enough on finishing his first book. I cannot emphasize this enough, having read it from cover to cover. It's something every tennis fan needs to put on their must-read list in 2024. And certainly with Osaka returning to the tour this year. It feels very pertinent to what we will be seeing moving forward. I kind of talked about it with Ben there at the end. He kind of finishes this book and releases it at a perfect time, right? This kind of, this novel, this novel, I did it again there, this work of art It captures everything from what we will call act number one of Naomi Osaka's career. And clearly, as we approach 2024, she is entering act number two. So in case you missed out on anything or you just simply want to learn more about the rise of Osaka, you want to read a fascinating tale with elite, exceptional new reporting, check out Ben's book. Purchase it today. Naomi Osaka, her journey to finding her power and her voice. And again, a massive thank you to Ben for taking the time to chat with us today. Of course, we've got Ben available on the mini break podcast today as well as he and I are making our predictions who will be the top 10 American men and women coming out of the 2024 season it is now a second annual tradition that Ben and I have put together something certainly I look forward to hopefully doing more each and every season moving forward so if you want to hear some predictions for how we think 2024 is going to play out on the court go check out the cracked uh, excuse me the mini break podcast feed if you want to hear a preview of the 2024 college tennis season the great shot podcast feed is for you. And of course, we've got some more fantastic interviews available coming up here on the Cracked Interviews podcast as well. So make sure to keep 
checking in uh, for new episodes each and every day. Of course, in that spirit, a shout-out and thank you, as always, to our super producer, Daniel Westa, for the f*** of an editing job he does day in, day out, making all of our content possible. I should say, I'm recording this intro on Friday, December 29th. Why is that relevant to all of you listeners? Well, it's Westoff's birthday, and I just want to be clear. He is the proverbial straw that stirs the drink here at Cracked Rackets. Without him, nothing would do we do would be possible. So, I know he's not listening to this as he hears enough of my voice day in day out but Westoff we love you we miss you I don't know why I miss you I say I miss you because I haven't been with him for a couple of weeks we've both been with our respective families anyways we all love you Westoff we know this wouldn't happen without you so happy birthday my brother and appreciate all you do for all of us here at Cracked Rackets with that said though for our fantastic guest Ben Rothenberg our super producer Daniel Westoff and from all of us here at both Cracked Rackets and the Tennis Channel Podcast Network I'm your host Alex Gruskin you've been listening to another edition of the Cracked Interviews podcast. Stay safe, stay healthy. Talk to you all soon. Thanks, everyone.